0: which I gladly do, and which I fully embrace. Working out, automatic. Whacking out, automatic. Catholic all-girls schools, automatic. Still is. It's the Litigation God Podcast. Hey, everyone. We're here for episode three of the Litigation God Podcast. With us today is Raina Lubin. I've known Raina for almost four years now. We started at the DA's office at the same time, and you know I've said before that this was a job where you don't just need book smarts; you had to have presence. And there were very few people in my class who had presence like Rena when she stepped into the courtroom. It was very obvious from the beginning she was going to be a star, and you know what? She was really successful at the DA's office. She shot up the ladder to being the go-to attorney for the Integrated Domestic Violence Court part in Brooklyn Supreme Court. She won many, many trials, and she now works as a private civil rights attorney where she handles discrimination cases on the basis of race, sex, and disability. And she also produces her own podcast, The Link-Up, which covers women's issues in and out of the workplace. Welcome aboard, Raina. Good to have you here.
1: Thank you. Good to be here. I'm excited.
0: Raina,
2: how much did Thanks you pay him? Thanks for that
1: introduction.
2: Yeah, how much did I you pay know. him to say all that good stuff? He doesn't say that about me.
1: <laughs> I know. I was like, what, what did I do to get this introduction? OK, thank you.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's never said anything like close to that about me. So you have to be very special.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it so much.
2: <laughs> so Rena tell us a little bit about yourself we hear that you grew up in louisiana before you uh you started kicking ass in the courtroom
1: i did i did i grew up in a small town called La Paz, louisiana it's like 15 miles outside of new orleans um i miss louisiana every day i love working in new york but i mean honestly like There's just, like, no food like the South. Me and Asif used to talk about it all the time. Like, we don't believe in New York pizza. Like, I don't know. I can't find the right pizza place to, like, eat here. Like, everyone's always telling me, like, go eat at this restaurant. Go eat here. You're going to love it. Oh, I promise you. It's just like New Orleans. Anytime anybody says it's just like New Orleans, I already know it's going to be a complete fail. But, you know, I still go because obviously I love food, <laughs> so I go. Terrible. All terrible. So I well, try you got to people... go back as often as I can.
0: <laughs> well, you got people that are uh, that are buying King Cake from uh, Whole Foods, right? That's as authentic Disgusting. as it gets. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Disgusting. So Disgusting. Disgusting. Those you, of you um... don't know?
0: Go ahead. Sorry.
1: No, no, no. For those of you who don't know, like a king cake is just like the traditional cake that's served in Louisiana during Mardi Gras and it's basically like the easiest way I can explain it is like a super poppin giant cinnamon roll. And I think that Whole Foods does a terrible job. They make it like so cakey, so just like if you need if you eat a bite, you need like water immediately. Like it's just disgusting. It's basically like a giant piece of like french bread with sprinkles on top is what whole foods does and it's just terrible it's there, just absolutely terrible there's always
2: like a plastic baby inside though too right i, I had no clue about king yeah i'm from colombia originally and I, I moved to the states and i like was about to eat the cake and they're like watch out there's a plastic baby inside I'm <laughs> like, what the fuck
1: <laughs> yeah 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 you have to be aware it's like the tradition so like if you cut the piece of cake and it has like the baby in it then you bring the uh, next king cake for the next party oh, so like that's what happens with the baby so yeah so, but you're definitely got to be, a, like, careful because you don't want to hazard a situation for sure.
2: <laughs> so is food why you became so close to Asif? Because basically that's all he talks about all the time.
1: That's one of the reasons why we became close for sure, you know, our affinity for food and just, you know, joking around, honestly. I feel like me and Asif are two people who, like, work really hard, but we also play super hard, and I think that – we definitely connected on that level like yeah we're in our first year like being kicked around like bottom barrel attorneys basically like just being hazed right and left but we're still gonna go out and have a drink and have a good time so yeah, just one that's drink we're sure
0: so
2: i <laughs> don't know plural. i don't know if asif's told you but he actually like taught me like a little bit about like having like a lot of fun i used to have like a little bit of fun and asif's like no dude you gotta have a lot of fun <laughs>
1: Yeah. You got to have a lot of fun. We do a lot of stuff. We work so hard. It's like, you got to have a lot of fun. You have to have like a release or something. One hundred
0: percent. Me so and Steve definitely of,
1: connected on that.
0: <laughs> so speaking of that balance between, you know, working and playing, um, you were also in a very unique position in undergrad because you were playing on the LSU soccer team, right? Yes,
1: yes, yes, yes. It's, like, one of my favorite times in my life being a student athlete. Super fun, super hard, really, too, because you just, like, balance. Um, Just working really hard to get to where you wanted to be. Like, I feel like that's, like, a goal that I had when I was, like, four years old. I want to play soccer in college. You know, at one time I wanted to, like, be on the women's national team. So, like, doing that, making it, and then still balancing, like, and social life in college. Very difficult, but still super rewarding. I just, like, loved it. And then, like, to go to LSU, which, being a kid from Louisiana, LSU is just, you know, at that time, just, like, the end-all, be-all in my eyes. Like, I have to go to, like, the flagship university. So I was super excited and blessed to be able to go there as well and play at a big D1 school. So it was so fun. I mean, I'm not saying that our games were packed. I feel like we used to get the residual people in from like the football games so we would play on like friday and sunday and the football games on saturday so we would have people come in town and just like come to the games because they were like there even though we were super good but you know football like rules everything in the south so that's what happened but it was so fun such a good time
0: and i'm sure some of that discipline that you have to have as a student athlete in undergrad that sets you up for success in law school right
1: Oh, definitely. And, um, you know, I was able to even get scholarships. Like, through being a student athlete, there was, like, tons of people who – Um, were athletes that funded scholarships for people who wanted to go on and get a professional education, whether it was in like your JD or like if you went to medical school. So the athletic program at LSU really does push for you to like continue your education if that's what you want. So they were very helpful in that avenue of me getting my uh, education and then even getting my job. I mean, I can't even tell you how many interviews I was in and I was just talking about you know, being a student athlete or maybe someone's daughter was also, you know, working their way up the ranks and trying to uh, be a college uh, player. So it's always like super helpful to know, um, you know, always super helpful to like talk about in your interviews, just like networking with people. The Alumni Association out here is huge. So they still help me in my professional career, honestly.
0: Are you going to be one of those boosters that, uh, <laughs> that jumps up and like <laughs> I mean, cool.
1: Yeah, for sure. Once I make enough money, I would definitely contribute back to LSU and like the athletic program. Cause they really did support me in like every, which way I could think of. So I would definitely give back in like the legal so. way because you know, you know, schedule things out in a <laughs> situation, but I would be totally legit for sure.
0: <laughs> so um, speaking of I guess the help that the LSU alumni network um, gave you and moving forward with your career can you tell us about how you ended up in New York
1: yeah so it was kind of just random honestly I really coming out of law school I had worked in Uh, the Orleans Public Defender's Office. That was one of my last internships that I uh, worked in when I was in law school. And it was just really shocking to me to see like the injustices that happen in the criminal justice system. And I really felt like change happens from the opposite side come from within the system. So I was like, I want to be an ADA. I want to be able to help in some sort of way. So I'm going to start just kind of applying to prosecutors offices across the country that I feel like are more progressive than where I am right now. And when I learn how to, you know, work the system or I see uh, people doing it right, maybe I'll be able to go back down to the South and lobby for actual change. So I started looking and researching and I uh, found Brooklyn DA's office, and at that time, they were like one of the first ones to, you know, decriminalize marijuana. Like we're not prosecuting these marijuana offenses anymore, and they had conviction review. Like let's go over these long convictions and make sure that we have the right person incarcerated. And I was so impressed with the policies and like the change that the Brooklyn District Attorney's office was making that really attracted me to the office, and I sought it out. And so I really just applied and went through my interviews and thankfully got it. And I had a great time at the GA's office.
2: What was the transition like going from uh, Louisiana to, to New York to like a big city like New York?
1: I thought it would be terrible. And I was like, deathly afraid of it because I sw- I had been in Louisiana my whole entire life, basically, but it was easy. I mean, like I said, the LSU network is really here. So I had a lot of friends, uh that were already here. A lot of people had reached out to me for support. So I was really lucky to have a lot of support. Um, I wasn't really like into the whole public transportation thing, like the train (laughs) thing is like the only thing that was freaking me out, but you know, I made it happen and it's fine now.
2: So interesting question for both of you. After this whole COVID uh, thing, do you guys, are you guys planning on, on moving back? Do you guys think you'll be New Yorkers forever? Like, is that something you're gonna do? Or are you guys thinking of moving somewhere else?
1: I don't know if I'm going to be a New Yorker forever, but I can be a New Yorker for an extensive amount of time. Like I'm having fun in New York. My career is taking off in New York. I just don't have any real reason to leave right, right now, but I do want to eventually go back to the South because I do want to take some of the things that I'm doing here and apply them to where I'm from.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I I don't know if I'll be in New York forever, but um, I think, for myself, like for for other transplants too, like once you hit that point where you're thinking of starting a family, and then you realize like, do I do I really want to drop all of this money to either, you know, live in Long Island or live in Westchester? Probably not. Um, I think <laughs> when when other people have reached out to me, either from like Nebraska or Georgia, I tell them like if you have the opportunity, live in New York for a few years in your twenties and thirties and then you know, do the thing that the real New Yorkers always shit on transplants for, which is <laughs> <thing to leave. laughs>
1: it's back. New York is crazy expensive. I mean, I couldn't believe how much rent was like you. It's different from like seeing it online or like hearing about New York is so expensive than actually coming here and that money, your whole paycheck is like going to rent. That's crazy. So yeah, the south is just a little bit easier to live, you know, definitely easier to raise a family. So
2: It's it's just crazy cuz my friends that work in big law, they complain about their salaries and not being able to afford like like housing and stuff and like going out and then I remember Steve would like explain to me what he was making and I was like, "How are you even like living?" You know, it's 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 crazy to me. <laughs> And he would be, you know, going out all the time. I'm like, how do you do this, man?
0: <laughs> it's, called, it's called not having anything in my 401 <laughs> Yeah, It's crazy. It's crazy now.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: and so now you, uh, after, okay, so let's talk a little bit about you. Once you got to New York and you started the DA's office, was that exactly what you're hoping for or was it more?
1: So I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do when I was at the DA's office. So when I when I got to the DA's office and me and Asif worked in ECAP, I had no idea what ECAP was and I was like very confused by what was going on with all of that. But once you get through like the ECAP room is basically like whenever someone gets arrested, then there's a bunch of ADAs in like this room that look at the charges, see if we have enough to move forward or like to to charge the offender and then you send it off to the courtroom and then the person is like legally charged in front of the judge. And so all you do for like the beginning period of time whenever you're an ADA is kind of work these ridiculous hours and deal with people's arrests. At that point I was like, I don't know this is not what I wanted to <laughs> sign up for like I thought I was going to be making real change, not like dismissing the open container tickets like I don't know yeah. what's going on over here but after we I got past that point of the you know beginning of your career and I landed in a bureau I um, made it into the domestic violence bureau I Didn't know I would like the DV Bureau as much as I did, but I loved it. Every single step of the way, I had a great time, and I think that I made amazing connections in that Bureau and learned a lot about the law and really working with other people and victims and stuff. So I really appreciate it and was blessed for that opportunity.
0: So let's let's add some context to the ECAB experience for for the listeners out there that aren't familiar with it, because we were basically working in – A war zone because people are running around (laughs) all over the place at any given moment there would be 30 40 cases that were just waiting right to be written up people are screaming over the intercom it felt like you were you know like running around in the stock exchange and we we had this um one supervisor who was just like and especially i don't know like ball buster, hard ass. And she had these <laughs> heels that were so loud. She, she would just like stomp around and you could tell that she was coming. It would be like in Jurassic yeah. Park where you hear like the T-Rex is coming, like boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Like you're just working on something. All of a sudden she's there. And before you know it, you're getting yelled at and you're like, what what is going on? It was yeah. just like a complete haze.
1: Right? It's a haze. And I really its like, are they trying to haze us? Like, is this the thing? Because that's what it felt like every single day.
2: <laughs> it's so funny because I think all of law is just like a big hazing. Like, since the first day of law school, like, they're just trying to fucking haze you. And then it just goes along. Yeah. For, like, working in big law, they're just trying to haze you. <laughs> it's, it's like, when does it end?
1: <laughs> when does the haze end? It's crazy. It's crazy. But the ECAP haze was wild because... You work ridiculous hours so in Brooklyn and a lot of you know the counties like in New York, there's just have like these twenty four hour basically court systems going on. So we're in court till one, two in the morning arraigning defendants in front of a judge so you have to have the manpower to sustain that so if you're in the ecab room you could be there all night on a saturday and you're like coming out of law school like so excited for a job (laughs) and all of a sudden you're in this dusty ass
2: room with like
1: uh, intercom people yelling over at two o'clock in the morning talking about like we gotta get this case off the deck and you're like what is going on here what is happening like it's just it's just crazy. No one could ever imagine that that's what you would be doing fresh out of law school. At
0: least, I mean, there there was a time where the damn building caught on fire, and then they walked <laughs> us back in there like 45 <laughs> minutes. Like the fire alarm's still going <laughs> off. There's like water on the floor from the sprinklers. It smells yeah. like fucking like an asbestos like product liability. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and about they're like, get back
1: to work. Uh, Listen, at least
2: at least you had uh, Steve's uh, good ties for bad boys going on, so it entertained everybody. Very entertaining. The the
0: fashion scene, yeah. And um, (laughs) one of the other things that um, I think I I enjoyed at least a little bit was with the schedule, you could work either from eight a.m. to about four to six, or then there'd be a second shift from. 4 p.m. to whenever. Um, sometimes it would be as early as like 10, 30, 11. If you really just got shafted, sometimes you'd be there like past 2 a.m. But what that would do is you go to work around four, you write up your cases, whatever, you get stressed out. But then you get out with enough time to still hit the bars. That was like one of the few, <laughs> yeah. that was one of the few like selling points left.
1: But at the same
0: time, like, you know, when you get off working arraignments, it's what, like, you know, past one. And sometimes they would have car service to take ADAs home because we're in suits and it's not safe. Um, I wouldn't wait for that. It would take a while. So sometimes I would just hop on like the damn train. And it's like, (laughs) I know, like, if you're there (laughs) at the Borough Hall station at like one in the morning, You probably saw me like either trying to arraign like your friend or family member or like I tried to arraign you and you got out. (laughs) Yeah, and now you're riding the train. You
1: guys are riding the train together back home.
2: (laughs) Did you guys ever have any situation where you felt like actually scared because you were trying, uh, you know, a defendant or something like that and they they like made threats against you or anything like that?
1: Um, so not when I was in ECAB, but when I moved to the zones or I moved to the domestic violence bureau and I started handling more serious cases, I started getting like random messages like on Instagram. Some no. of them were nice. Like, no, I'm telling you. Some of them like one of them said, I saw you in court today. Thanks so yeah. much for looking out for me. You know, I really appreciate you not being so tough on me. Good looking out. I was like, okay. Oh, boy.
0: <laughs>
1: then one time I got a phone call, not on my personal phone, but my office phone. It was like, Raina Lubin, I'm about to lube you up. Wait, and what? I was like, oh, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> and I was like, bad. Okay, guess I need to report this. Jeez. <laughs> I was like clever never heard that fourth grade I mean I heard that a thousand times get out of here but but yeah that one and then um I mean I randomly sometimes run into people like on the train station not that if they were my immediate defendant but they might be like a family member or a friend or like a friend of a victim and they're like hey oh my gosh I recognize you my friend is going to call you. She has another question. And I'm like, all right, no problem. So it does happen. It did happen to me at least quite a bit.
2: Steve, did (laughs) it ever happen
0: to you? Yeah. um, I I did run into people like, I think maybe once or twice, like somebody recognized me actually, like one time um, it was a bullshit case and I, I dismissed it. And like later the guy like saw me like walking past like a barbecue place and he gave me like a head, had not or whatever but what was more annoying was from the beginning in training they sort of indoctrinated us with hey you're public figures now so you have to be on your best behavior and we actually had like a former judge come in and give us like this locker room pep talk and i'm like using my like 70 year old like clint eastwood voice but he's like yeah somebody bumps into you and spills your drink you're a pussy if somebody like (laughs) says the wrong thing, like that's what he said. And so they like always, you know, like scared of like one wrong thing and you're gonna be on the New York Post. Everyone's like, you know, waiting for you to, and so it was kind of annoying in the sense that where other times if I'd just been like a normal person and this person was annoying me or, you know, they bumped into my friend at the bar, I would probably say something, but I felt handcuffed basically or like restricted. And there was one specific time where I was leaving the office, maybe close to like 11 PM. Um, I was in street clothes. Uh, There was like a search warrant that came in. I'm walking out and there's just like a random, like Eastern European looking guy, like standing in front of the office. There's nobody there. And he's like looking at me and he's like grinning. And he's like, he said like, you're either a snitch or you're a cop. And I'm like, all right, whatever, dude. And I just kept going. Like, in a different world, I would have said something. And I'm like, I can't say anything. So I just, like, kept it moving. That was more
1: funny. Yeah.
0: That's crazy. Have you guys uh, watched the
2: new Netflix documentary about Jeffrey Epstein? I
1: haven't finished it, but I saw some of it.
2: God, it's so good. And it's they, they, uh, they a lot of it is based on kind of, like, the corruption that was going on in the state attorney's office in Palm Beach County. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just that's it's shocking because especially for me coming from from Colombia where it's like all corruption to the U S you think stuff like that doesn't happen, but it's like going on all the time. And I don't know if you guys had any insight into that.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that's why I was, I was like, okay, I come to the prosecutor's office and I make a change. Like there's always going to be corrupt people somewhere, people making the wrong decisions somewhere. And I need to be a part of like, the movement to stop that, because, I mean, we even see it right now, like when the Ahmaud Aubrey situation, there was a whole corruption going on in their state's attorney's office. Like, oh, all of a sudden the the GA, I believe, knew um, the the McMichael um family members. And so it's like corruption's always around and it's in de- definitely various attorney's offices. And so it's really on the people that are around them for stock. It. It's crazy. It happens all the time.
0: Yeah. That's, it's insane. We, we touched about this earlier, but um, I think we were both fortunate to work in what was probably the most and still is the most progressive district attorney's office in the country. And, uh, Absolutely. We, you know, we were brought on right as um, you know, D.A. Thompson was still there. And you mentioned um, you know, the conviction review and then you know, the dismissal of marijuana charges. One of the things that really resonated with me and I talked about it all the time was um, they would have these periodic events called begin again, where if you had an open summons for something stupid like an open container or um, you know, disorderly conduct, something that was just out for months or even years, and that would have stopped you. And, um, you know, you would have had a warrant out, you could just show up and there would be people from the district attorney's office, people from legal aid, and they would yeah. work together to to get that dismissed. All the, you know, unnecessary, you know, stupid charges would be wiped out and people would be able to be begin again. It was a very cool, unique experience. Mm-hmm. Um, Those were the kind of initiatives, I think, that really set our office apart from the rest of the country.
1: I agree. I mean, I was telling the story the other day to one of my friends when I was working in New Orleans at the Orleans Public Defender's Office. I was waiting for one of my cases to be called. And when I was waiting for one of my cases to be called, I'm sitting in the courtroom. I'm kind of seeing what's going on. There was like a young maybe 20 year old white guy that had some been caught for possession of some drugs. The state attorney's office, the DA's office was like, um, you know, we're going to let this guy go with a couple of hours of community service and um, a program, and then we'll wipe the charges clean. So the guy leaves, he's very happy. The next case calls up. It's a 20 year old black man and the offer was jail time, it was not a program, oh, wow. they had the same record, it was the same age, the difference was literally just race. And the judge just stopped the courtroom and was like, young man, I don't know if you were paying attention to the case that was called about five minutes ago, but it was the exact same charges that you have in the exact same age and you have the exact same record, the difference is you're in an orange jumpsuit and that man just walked out of the courtroom and it's because you're black. And that was just said and the district attorney's office is just looking at the judge, not even flinching, not even saying anything. And I was just so shocked and really happy that the judge brought it up. And the judge obviously made his own, um, you know, his own recommendation for sentencing. And the young man ended up getting the same thing that the white man did. But Our office, I didn't believe when I was working there, and I don't believe now would ever be caught in such a predicament, because they did make all these efforts to make sure that they were fair and doing the right thing. And there's not, not every office in the country does that. Like, that was so shocking. It happened in, I don't know, maybe this is like 2015 or 2016. So fairly recent. And, you know, the the disparities just continue to go on, unfortunately.
2: Was this something that you saw, like, all over the place? Or was it just, like, on a couple instances?
1: No, I saw it a lot. I mean, that's what really prompted me to, like, come to the DA's office in Brooklyn and try to, you know, see what's different here that can't be done in the South. Or is it just having the right people in the right positions, making the right move for change? Like, what has to be done to get these sort of initiatives going everywhere?
0: Right. So... Yeah. And, you know, when when people talk about, um, you know, reforming criminal justice and revamping parts of um, prosecutors offices, there's kind of talking on a macro level. But you were um, you were there in the DV unit, which I'm sure has its own unique set of challenges compared to the other bureaus. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So it's. It's it's hard because so in Brooklyn, I'm serving a Brooklyn community. So a lot of the Brooklyn community is black and brown people. So I find a lot of victims coming in and they don't want to move forward with their cases for various reasons, not just that they, you know, are in love with this person, even though they just beat them up or they're financially dependent on this person. They have nowhere to go. It's very expensive. It's New York City. But they also don't want to contribute to having another black man in jail. And so it's a very hard dynamic to deal with. And you really have to kind of take a step back and come out of like your lawyer suit for a minute and hear what they're dealing with and what they're grappling with. Because ultimately, there's some cases that you're not going to be able to go forward with without a victim. So they have to feel comfortable with you to be in, I guess confident in you that you're going to be able to bring their case to justice or they are going to be able to see some sort of justice on the end of it. Um, There was a situation, I tell the story a lot, in which I was in a case with this woman and I was in DV for almost, I don't even know, almost three years, I guess, almost two or maybe two years. But I had seen her since I had started in DV. So when I saw her first, this man, her husband had punched her in the face she came in she explained the situation to me she said she doesn't want to go forward she doesn't want to contribute to seeing another black man in jail it's not a part of her culture Um, it's not a big deal she just wants to sign um, a waiver she just wants to drop the charge she doesn't want to be a part of it i let her go there was no way unfortunately for me to prove the case without her based on the other evidence that i had so couldn't do anything with the case i see her maybe six months later And this time he threw some drawers, some, some things at her that caused her to have to have stitches all done in front of the children. At this point, I'm having a conversation with her. Like, you know, this is getting progressively worse. We need to start thinking about how to keep you safe, your children safe. Like we need to really think about your family in this situation, if anything, because, you know, I don't want to see you in here again. Same situation, didn't want to go forward. I see her back. Five months after that incident, and her face was flashed 25 times. And at that point, I was like, we have to go forward. You know, the next time I'm not, there's going to be no next time, because you're going to be dead. And she still didn't want to go forward. Still didn't want to go forward. And it took a lot of convincing, a lot of just talking. I mean, I might have been talking to her for hours to try to convince her to move forward with the case. And ultimately, ultimately, we were able to move forward with the case and we were able to get a conviction in that case. And he's serving time in jail. But you really have to take a step back because you're not just dealing with, you know, stranger violence, a random person just jumped you and you just want to, you know, seek justice against this stranger. You're dealing with dynamics, racial dynamics. You're dealing with family dynamic. You're dealing with, you know, children are in the picture and you have to really take a step back and understand the full situation so you can handle it
2: appropriately was it easy for you to go home after dealing with cases like that and like forget about it or did it actually like impact you daily
1: um some of the cases like that case really sat with me and i was like upset about it because i was really concerned with her safety but ultimately you know i would find I would find happiness at the end if I was able to connect with the victim and able to move forward with the cases. And like all the cases that, you know, I went to trial with and was able to win, you know, I was able to win for the victim, the people that sometimes they weren't even there. Sometimes I would have to go forward without them if I was able to. So I just kind of, when I would get in sad spaces because it was so heavy, I would just think of the ultimate good that was down the line or the good that I was trying to achieve to keep my spirits up. And then, you know, if that didn't work, then i just turn on some reality TV, just look at some <laughs> nonsense Steve. on TV, call, call a thief, laugh with my friends, you know, pour
0: yeah. some champagne, you know, just the typical. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, you have, to, you have to learn to turn your brain off. And I think at a certain point, unfortunately, you also just kind of get desensitized to it because you're dealing mm-hmm. with such a large volume of assault cases that are coming yeah. through. You so, do. You
1: deal with a ridiculous volume.
0: So from your time in DV, um, I know you mentioned there were you know racial dynamics that you had to deal with. Do you think um, your position as a you know, African-American female prosecutor helped you connect with victims in a way that They otherwise wouldn't
1: have. Possibly, I I definitely think that they would feel way more comfortable with me being telling them, you know, you know, I'm a black woman too, and I care about our black men, but I also care about us. We're black women, and we have to also look out for ourselves, and we we're important too. And you are important. You can't take this beating. So, you know, I think it. It resonated differently coming from me, me than coming from maybe some of my white counterparts. Yeah. And they're already in a situation where sometimes they don't want to talk at all. They don't want to even come into the office. And seeing some sort of familiarity across the across the desk is very helpful, I think.
0: Helps build that trust, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely.
0: And what what type of cases are
2: you doing now? Um, You said you're doing more civil rights cases?
1: Yes. So I do. Now I'm on the civil side. So I do do a lot of 1983 police brutality cases. I have a lot of um, death uh, discrimination, disability discrimination cases, um, sexual harassment cases, um, all on the civil side. So still very much in the space of helping people. Just on the opposite side.
2: How do you like it so far? Do you do you miss uh, being on the criminal side?
1: I miss the criminal side, but I think that it's super important. I feel like when you're a young attorney, if you have the opportunity to diversify yourself to do it, and so like coming on the civil side, I was like, what? Well, I forgot what even summary judgment was. Like, what is going <laughs> on over here? Oh, I have to write a motion what's going on? So I think that it was super beneficial for me just like as an attorney to build my skills in that way. And it's super helpful because some of these um, things that are happening, happening to these people, they're not, you know, quote unquote crimes. They're just terrible people doing shitty things to just innocent people trying to like live their daily lives. So like I have tons of maybe like like a death case and where um, there's a patron at a restaurant just trying to order food and the clerk at the restaurant doesn't want to serve them because they're deaf. So they're making fun of them and they're making fun of the way they're talking and they're like gesturing to them using like their middle finger and like mouthing profanity to them and all these things. That might not be criminal action, but it's a terrible thing and you need to be penalized civilly for it because you can't be running around with all this hate in your heart and acting like that so i think that it's great for me to be able to make a difference on that side as well
2: yeah 100 and obviously get paid a little better so i'm sure you, you like oh that yeah too.
1: For, sure. <laughs> for sure for sure for sure for I, sure I,
0: honestly you, I, go ahead Steve. I, I saw a tweet um maybe a couple a couple weeks ago where somebody you know brought up how when um you know if you're poor or indigent and you get accused of a crime you have you know a right to a public defender being assigned to you but they were advocating for the civil equivalent of that what are your thoughts on that
1: uh, i mean i i'm i'm into it but i just don't know i don't know how how civil attorneys are going to do it cuz they're trying to get paid they're not they don't have the resources for like From like the state level. So, like the state's not funding the investigation. The state is not, you know, helping out in any sort of way. So, it might be a little difficult for that to be, you know, widely done on the civil side. Practical, yeah, because you have to fund that. I do think that more, you know, attorneys should do a lot of work pro bono and definitely help out in that aspect. But I don't know if it can be. You know, a worldwide or nationwide thing, because I don't think it's practical to be able to fund that. Those investigations are very expensive and, you know, discovery and deposing people, it's super expensive. I don't know if um, everyone would have the resources to be able to do that.
2: And the sad part about pro bono is like, I did a couple of pro bono cases and they were my favorite cases because the partners don't really care that much. They're just like, go run with it. And so you get to work with yeah. your colleagues and you really get to, you know, get in the weeds and actually handle the case from the initial stages. Uh, But the problem is that these big law firms don't really stress it. You know, they don't, they don't, I don't know, give it as much importance as they do like a big case where, you know, they're going to make a lot of money. And that's, that's kind of the sad part, but I wish it was more, more stressed, you know.
1: Definitely. I think pro bono is super important. And I mean, if you can do it, if your firm allows you to do it, definitely get in there and do that. I had tons of friends that were able to do pro bono services for like all the protesters that were being arrested and I just think that that's wonderful work and everyone should be able to try to get it in there if they can.
0: 100%. So how did you know it was it was time to leave the DA's office? Was it you know you just woke up one day and you're like I kind of accomplished everything I needed to do or was it slow phasing out?
1: So I was just kind of scared about staying one place too long and not being able to diversify myself and not um, and kind of just looking like, you know, I've been here for seven years. Can somebody else take a chance on me, even though I have no idea what skill set you really need for that job over there? But please give me an opportunity. So I thought that at the time that I left, it was the right time to be able to try to make a change if I wanted to. But when I left the DA's office, like I was really in a great place and I loved all the work and I I didn't leave in any poor manner. So I definitely kind of said to my supervisors, like, you know, if I don't like to get over there, I really am gonna come back because I do love prosecuting and like doing this work in domestic violence. I think it's awesome. So I kind of left that door open just in case I hated it. But I don't hate the civil side. I think the civil side has been great to me so far. I do find purpose in it, just like I had found purpose in the domestic violence unit. So I'm very happy. But I just thought that it was like the time to diversify myself if I was going to do it. I didn't want to come off as a career prosecutor on my resume.
2: How do you find... um... So how do you find attorneys on the civil side, like especially opposing counsel? I have a lot of friends that are state attorneys or um, criminal defense attorneys, and they say that just practicing is so much better because everybody's so much more collegial and nice to each other. Have you found that being on this? <laughs> have you found that being on the civil side, it's like the total opposite?
1: Um. So yes and no. I think that with discrimination cases, the other side, you're like, come on, man. Come on, yeah, look right. at what happened and they're like, <laughs> no, complete BS, like, how could you say that? And you're like, it's on video, what the are you talking about? The guy about? lost like, <laughs> his legs, it's on
2: video, bro. <laughs>
1: it's on video, like, you know, level with me, but, you know, I understand they're doing their job, and, like, everyone is super professional, no one's, like, acting crazy or anything, but I do think that some of these defenses are ridiculous, and I'm just like, come on, guys come on, let's settle this right now. Don't make me have to write this summary judgment motion. Right. But, you know, I always got to write it. So it is what it
2: is.
0: Exactly. To <laughs> so backtrack a bit, um, now, now that you're outside of the DA's office, like you're like me, we're, we're on the outside sort of looking in and we can yeah. kind of be more objective about it. Um, what do you see that still needs to be changed with respect to Brooklyn and also New York City as a whole?
1: I think just continue changing policies. I think that right now there's really big push with like you know police reform and you know prosecuting police officers. And I think that you know it's on the it's, sometimes it's on the DA's office to you know take on those cases. And we work with police officers every day, and we have to hold those people accountable as well as um, you know all the defendants out there that we're holding accountable. So I think that there's. Tons of room there. I think that you can always grow a conviction review unit. You never know what has been had way before you were there. You know, there's some people in the district attorney's office that have been there for 30 years and um, how sometimes they wear it as a badge of honor. I'm nervous because 30 years ago, you weren't as progressive as you are now. So if there's still people there that have been there for 30 years, we still need to be reviewing all of those cases. And we still need, you know, even though we've overturned a couple, the work doesn't stop. We just got to keep going to make sure that no one's just sitting in jail for no reason. Or we didn't miss the um, sentence that should have been overturned. So I think it's just always continued
0: work. And I think right now there's, there's some talk about expanding the scope. Of 1983 litigation, um, yeah. what what do you see that that needs to be changed, or what do you see that's coming in the horizon?
1: So, for those of the people that don't know, you know, 1983 qualified immunity is on the civil side, which basically protects government officials from being held personally liable for constitutional violations. So, on the police side, it protects police officers from you know these. Police brutality cases. And basically, what happens when you're in those cases is if any reasonable officer in the whole entire country thinks that that force was reasonable, then the officer is immune and he is protected by qualified immunity. And that is just such a crazy standard. It is almost impossible to get a police officer on the hook because you can literally like look through every single police department and find one reasonable officer that would have done the same thing in almost every single case. So it's so hard. And I think like Justice Sotomayor had said that has as qualified immunity is written now. It's like you pull the trigger and then you think about it later. And I don't think that that's fair. And that's allowing these officers to act any kind of way and not you know, think first before they're acting. So bringing back some of those protections and holding them accountable and like bringing the standard down so that we can actually get some civil action on that side is super important. And I'm really hopeful that the way that America is acting right now and all the protests that are going on really brings that to the forefront and the Supreme Court takes on some of these cases that are kind of pending right now.
2: What do you think the standard should be? Should, should it be like a reasonable person standard, kind of like a self-defense standard? Or what do you think the standard should be?
1: Um, I don't know. I, I think that reasonableness has to be defined because reasonable is too broad right now. And so saying that's exactly what it is. it is. If any reasonable officer would act that way, then you're good and you're good to go. So that's That's just opening up the door to find one random person in the deep, deep South who has, you know, rooted racism that would do the same exact thing. And so you're good over here. And that's just not fair and causes a lot of people to, you know, miss out on an opportunity to hold these police officers liable. So I don't really know what the standard is, but reasonableness has to be defined or reasonableness has to be taken out because it's just too broad and allows for too many things to happen inappropriately
2: right 100 i also think that this is all it's kind of like a symptom of the disease and I, I think obviously we have to fix what's going on but i think the the disease itself has to be accounted for first i think for example like people when they're arrested like as soon as you're arrested you may have you may not be convicted later on you may not even have done anything wrong but that arrest in itself is going to prevent you from getting jobs and from like being the person you may want to be and you know kind of guide you through a path that's like you know, crime-ridden and somewhere where you shouldn't be. I think so. I think there's like like more that needs to be done rather than just fixing this one problem. There's so much that needs to be done.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm so happy that um, America has responded this way in the wake of the George Floyd death. And I just and you know a lot of people are you know suggesting these changes in laws and changes in police reform, which is all needed. But at the base of that, it's, you know, ending racism and like having these talks with our white counterparts and with each other about not being scared of black people and not seeing black people as threatening and raising your children who are not black to not see black as a threat as well so there's all these important conversations that really just start with us before we even get to the laws and get to all the police reform and all of that
0: and you know i i think for a while in in the last decade like the 2010s we were sort of in this cycle where there would be a horrible death there would be some outrage some calls for change then it would fizzle out until the next incident happened. But something about mm. this time feels a little different, right? Is there something? Yeah. With this current movement that just has a different feel that makes you more hopeful than you were before?
1: So I was, I saw some meme on Instagram the other day that it like took, you know, all of us being inside locked up nothing to do nothing to see to really see how racist america is and i really do believe that that contributed to it 100 i mean we're all at home doing nothing we have nothing to do but evaluate the situation going on i think a lot of people said you know what it's really fucked up how people are treating black people and maybe we need to do something about it and so i'm really hopeful that it has hopeful more so in this movement because we have gone through it so so many times um i think that you know everyone's eyes are really open in understanding what's going on and i'm hopeful that you know we see some sort of change but what i'm most hopeful about are the conversations that it's starting because like i said before like you know, we can't just like put a bandaid on it and say like, okay, you know what, we're going to change this law and everything is going to be great. There's laws changing all the time that are trying to help, you know, equality in various avenues, but it's the conversations and people's thoughts. Like whenever I was having a conversation with my workplace, they were like, you know, what can we do to help the black plight? And I'm like, it's on white people. It's on you to figure out how not to be racist. I have no idea what kind of <laughs> conversations you need to have yeah, right. with each other to talk about it to figure out what do we do to see black people as equal and not threatening.
2: Just stop so... being weird around like minorities. You know what I mean? <laughs> like just be yourself. Like they try sometimes. Like trying too hard is also bad. So it's it's yeah, just yeah, be yeah. yourself.
1: So you, we're, like, we like we have to have the conversation. Right.
0: So does it take like a certain degree of patience when like you're sitting there and you can tell that like one of your, you know, like white counterparts, they're trying to gather themselves and they're like preparing themselves for like a talk or like to say something. And are you just kind of like, oh God, like here it comes, like how, like how stupidly are they going to say this?
1: (laughs) So I think that It's like something that as a black woman in these white spaces all my life that I've dealt with it forever and I and I'm so used to it and I and I know it's coming on. I get upset whenever the conversations are not, you know, directed towards any sort of like real means of change or they're like some sort of microaggression conversations versus conversations that I've been having lately that are like we really need to figure out what we can do we're trying to you know talk to each other like who who do we need to hire do we need to have diversity people come in like what do we need to do to fix this problem and I just see more active change in my conversations right now which which also makes me more hopeful but it's always going to be awkward and I think it's awkward for both both sides of the of the chain so I just look at them and I'm just like, you know, whatever. (laughs) This is me. This is like what I do with my whole life. So your five seconds of maybe feeling awkward doesn't really affect me because I'm always in this space all the time,
2: all the time. What's the funniest uh, like instances you guys have had of like kind of like like subtle racism where where someone doesn't think they're being racist but they're being like super racist? Like, for, for oh me, when God. I first started at my at one of, like my old workplace, one of my old workplaces, the during the interview, they're like, but you, you're sure you're Hispanic? Like, you don't sound Hispanic and you don't look Hispanic. Are you sure you're Hispanic? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty damn sure. What, whatever you guys, like, face.
1: Oh, my gosh. What have I done?
2: I'm, I'm sure, Steve, you've faced some pretty funny ones.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean... It's, it's very hard to quantify, I think, I think for all of us, um, a lot of times, when we walk into like a room, right, or a bar, or, you know, a conference, sometimes we might be the only person there that's like us, right? And we've, in a way, sometimes gotten desensitized to it. And we just sort of take that as the norm. Whereas I think if it was the inverse where, you know, if somebody was in a neighborhood or they just walked into a restaurant and it was like an ethnic restaurant that they weren't expecting, they would immediately become very self-aware of it, where it's just mm-hmm. something that we've kind of been accustomed to for better or worse. Right. Yeah. So no funny instances That, that was lame. <laughs> <laughs> That was my deep moment, Professional mic that I bought.
2: (laughs) I'm
0: getting a tax credit on. Doctor Phil shit, right there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's definitely, it's definitely a thing. Like we've all been there. We're always sometimes the only one in these white spaces, and. I think that being the only one in these white spaces, as I've grown older, I feel like I've been able to find my voice more. So where before I might not speak out on a microaggression or like, I don't know, I can't even think of an example off the top of my head, but you might be a little bit more scared to say something as like a baby attorney or just like a new person in the workplace. And I think just like as it's gone on, as time has gone on, I am more willing to say, you know what, I'm not coming at you like any kind of unprofessional way, but I'm going to tell you, you know, like, why do you feel that way? Like, why would you say that when you could say this? You know, this is why I feel this way. This is, you know, this is racist or this comes off racist to me. And I have no problem with saying that because it's the only way that you're going to defeat these, you know, racist comments or these racist thoughts or these microaggressions
2: i think if giving, we don't call them
1: out you can't no one's gonna do anything about it
2: yeah and i think giving less fucks just is so freeing as you grow older i remember i used yeah. to be so scared of just what i was gonna say it's just like once you get to that stage where you're just like no fucks given and you're like listen that was racist dude like stop doing that it's so free yeah that's
1: racist and it's like I wish that I had the confidence earlier because there were so many things that I should have said before, but I, like, I really try to reach out to my mentees and like the younger people, like, don't be afraid to say something like you're not going to get fired. That's going to be totally illegal. So (laughs) if you can just, if you can just call it out, like, you know, this, this is a little racist or I don't feel comfortable with the way that you said this. I just want to encourage people to stand up because that's the only way that the conversations will be changed or the way you're gonna be spoken to is gonna be changed. That person's gonna to go to bed at night not knowing that he did something wrong or not thinking that it's, you know, any any means to you. Like you need to speak on it or nothing is gonna
0: move from that. Right. But I think some of that empowerment comes from us living in New York City, which is obviously one of the most diverse progressive places in the world. Whereas oh, definitely. You know, for the the young African-American, male or female, that's still in the swamps of Louisiana. No offense. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> not it's, it's a little bit more challenging. It's a little bit more challenging. There, right. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah. No, it's definitely easier said than done. It's definitely challenging. I mean, you can walk into a workplace and there could be a Confederate flag like you don't know. Or there could be you know, a Trump bobblehead on your boss's table. And you're like, what am I going <laughs> to say to him? I don't know. But I encourage people to still stand up because, like, that's the only way that we're going to get these racists to move around and to check their privilege at the door. So definitely easier said than done, though.
0: I do think that um, part of the reason why it feels like this current movement is so much more um vibrant and powerful than some of the other ones that started and fizzled out earlier in the decade the last decade is there's such a strong youth movement behind this one right like everyone the younger generation they're on tiktok like shooting their videos they're like adding to the promotional campaign and it like makes you very hopeful for the future because it's not just um you know Minority children like coming into their own and being more empowered, but you also see, um, you know, your 12 year old white girl in Kansas who's definitely <laughs> right. more aware of what's happening than her mother was. Right. 10 years ago. Right. right.
1: right right and i think Definitely. That, i
0: think this whole thing is going to be
2: great moving forward because i think people are realizing that in numbers they can actually make things change like i think the next like mass shooting that happens after this people are going to do try to do the same thing and it, you know they're going to see like in mass they can actually get change to happen whereas before they you know people were just go on with it like how many mass shootings have you had and nothing has changed the status quo is the same so i think this right. is going to you know empower Absolutely. people
1: yeah, it shows people that, yeah, if you stand up, then things do get, you know, solved and moved and change does happen, you know, because sometimes I feel like young people think, like, my voice doesn't matter, you know, nothing I do is going to make a difference, but that's just totally quashed now. Look outside, look on the news. I mean, your voice does matter. It's made so many changes in just a short amount of time.
0: Is there is there anything with uh, the current movement that you're a little hesitant or skeptical about just compared to other movements where there, you have some reservations about how much it's actually going to accomplish?
1: So I guess you always get nervous about, you know, when things with trends and you're just like afraid that people are just jumping on, but they're really still gonna be racist at home. And I'm just like, I hope that these conversations are, you know, people are taking a step back and really listening to what's being said and what's happening on the news. And you're not just going out and protesting and then going back home and dropping the N-word and, you know, saying all this racist shit all over again. So, you know, I hope that people are really going to continue to act, you know, practice what they're preaching really right now. And it's not just an act. 'Cause I think trends are just sometimes they it's scary. It's super scary. And even and even in the sense of like You never know who your true ally is like the amy cooper situation in new york who you know called the police on that black man who was bird watching it came out that she was a liberal so this is a person that you know voted for obama and is preaching all these liberal things but when she's in a situation where she wants to use her white privilege against a black man she knows that she can do it and she did do it and i hope that you know this movement Changes that in these like quote unquote liberals because you you could be a liberal and you still might have a lot of racist views and you still might think black people are threatening so I hope that whenever you are leave the protest you come home and you really do practice what you preach
2: yeah that that case was was shocking and there's so many like that and I think like smartphones are helping so much because back back in the day it used to probably happen even more but nobody knew about it because you know it wasn't recorded it wasn't shared on um, you know instagram or social media networks but like now if you do that stuff you're going to get called out and that's going to ruin your life like that lady lost her job so i think it's like yeah. there's a lot more pressure
0: to you know to not the have the revolution yeah. against the karens starts. Oh, <laughs> <too>. <laughs> the karen. not today karen
1: not today karen and please not today. <laughs> it's crazy.
0: <laughs> one, of, um, one of the directions that um, the current protests have taken recently is now there's a movement to defund the police, which can mean a lot of different things. Um, I think people in their worst case scenario are thinking the police is going to be disbanded overnight. But that's, that's really not the case, right? Um, What's your understanding of what people are asking for and how much of it do you think is likely to happen for the next few years?
1: So my understanding of defund the police is basically taking money from the police officers from buying like expensive equipment or, you know, paying all these ridiculous overtimes or just the unnecessary money that may be going to the police force on like militia outfits and things like that and using that money and divesting into community programs such as like social services and mental health programs and housing in the community and I think that it's something that a lot of people have been calling for for a really long time and now it's finally getting a voice and I think that it's very very necessary I mean I don't have the numbers in front of me but I've definitely seen numbers to show like all of this money that's going into the police force. And if we just take some of it away, maybe we can make a change actually in our community and inform people, you know, about, you know, um, you know, just bringing the community together and like maybe even gaining trust for police officers and like having community events and putting money into like housing, like the housing, public housing in New York City is like shit. And, you know, taking money from NYPD and like, making someone's air condition work instead of like having them in the summer and dying of heat, I think is super important. So that's what defund the police is. And it's not we're ending the police. We're taking everything away from them. We're not having a police because we need police. We do need police to, you know, police the streets and keep things safe. But it is definitely sometimes I think it's just overfunded. And that's just what the defund the police is is all about
2: yeah i think that that's i, I agree with you 100 about reform i just think the word defund has to be very carefully used because the fund itself means to like completely stop financial support for something and i think that you know that's going to prevent a lot of change because people will be like oh these people that want change want no police that's crazy so i think the the whole movement of defund the police is a little dangerous because i'm all for this change that we're moving towards but by you know calling it defund the police we might not get there just because of that so i think it should
1: really be reallocate exactly (laughs) reform
2: reform police budgets right like reform police
1: budget
2: it's like we're shooting ourselves in the foot right we're shooting ourselves in the foot (laughs) we're like getting someone we're like no 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 let's let's not let's go five ten steps backwards you know right yeah the name
1: is not completely right
0: (laughs) any sentence with like the phrase defund the police is almost like a fox news headline right. writing itself yeah it.
1: like you won't <laughs> yeah. believe
0: what these crazy democrats want next they want to abolish law and order there i just i just wrote right. a tweet that's going to be published by trump in three hours oh, it's, dude it's already 30. been oh, trust me sure. he's already been there the guy
2: tweets like can you can you believe that he tweeted the other day 250 tweets like how does he 150 in one day some days i can't even some days i can't even do like the most basic of tasks and this guy is tweeting 250 times a day
0: it doesn't make any sense
2: yeah i definitely uh,
1: agree
0: when you when you were mentioning reallocating resources and you brought up housing that reminded me um one of the the biggest flaws I saw in the way that our current system handles domestic violence cases is there really isn't anywhere for uh, victims of DV to go if they don't have a friend or family member. It's basically you stay here and you get beaten up or you go to a shelter. Like there were so many times in ECAB where I was writing up, um, you know, an assault case. And then I tell them at the end, like, plus like, When he gets arraigned the judge is going to issue an order of protection he can't come back to to the apartment and instantly the tone would change because well no 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 he's he's the breadwinner here like he he pays the rent what do i do like
1: yeah where do i go exactly Mm -hmm. and that becomes a problem and people stay because they're financially dependent but if there was greater resources put into our government that may give her a place outside of a shelter or, you know, give her some sort of hotel stay or motel stay, just anywhere else besides the shelter, because some of these people are walking around with three children, three children under five. You don't want to bring your babies to a shelter. So you decide to stay and take abuse. And so if there was greater resources allocated to social services like that, then they we would inadvertently make the community safer. And help different various families, and so that's okay. definitely a whole part of the defunding the police.
2: Listen, Raina for okay. president 2024. <laughs> I'm all about it. For our <laughs>
0: listeners in New York, um, if if that issue resonated for you, I think one of the best organizations to provide those services, I would say, is uh, Safe Horizons. Is that right, Raina? Mm-hmm. That yep, around? Safe Horizons.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yep great great definitely great organization they try to do a lot of work with limited resources and do they do a great job
2: um so before we go arena i do hear that you have an amazing podcast that's probably better than ours called the link podcast (laughs) (laughs) can you tell us a little bit about it
1: yes the link podcast it's me and my two friends from law school and we've talk about a little bit what Asif was saying earlier, a bunch of social issues, definitely involving women in the workplace, but particularly black women and what we go through on a day to day. And it's super funny. Every single um, episode, we start off with a being black and white America moment. And we tell a story about, you know, when we were like, oh, my God, they don't realize that they're being racist. And that is super, super racist (laughs) or like we're in a precarious situation. and You're just like. I don't want to pull, you know, the angry black women card, but I need to turn up on these people and I just don't want to be dubbed as that angry black woman. So let me like take a step back. So there's like various things that we're thinking about, you know, to just make it every day in white America. And we just like, you know, bring light to it while still laughing because there's a lot of situations that we've all been in and we can all relate to. So we always talk about that. And then we just get into a topic of, you know, whatever's going on in the world or whatever we feel like talking about that day. So it's super fun, super exciting. Definitely check it out if you have time to link Up podcast.
2: I think uh, Litigation God and the Link-Up Podcast should link up at some point and have a group yeah. podcast. <laughs> can, we
1: should.
2: You know, shoot the shit and discuss yeah. current issues. Um, before, last thing before you go, what is your favorite meme on the Litigation God account? <laughs>
0: Oh, my God. Put <laughs> are on the spot. But... I...
1: Put me on the spot. Oh, my God. I actually, like, crack up laughing at you guys' stuff all the time. Like, I'm pretty sure I have a million screenshots in my phone. I don't know. I'm actually about to go... I'm going off Instagram right now because you know what? You guys do have some funny stuff. I like, I'm always sending them even to my like non-lawyer friends. I'm like, you guys get this? This is so funny. (laughs) And they're just, you know, some people do actually.
2: Yeah. It's funny because I send them to my non-lawyer friends as well. And they're like, that's not funny. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: They're
2: like, unsubscribe. Unsubscribe, please. (laughs)
1: <laughs> they don't think it's funny.
2: No, I like I, I'm telling you. When I started it, my friends are like, "You're not funny, dude. Like, why are you even
0: doing that?" I I totally <laughs> got that more than anyone else. But yeah, but later, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't all, only you. It was so many other people. Is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um is, yeah, um, yeah, is there an episode of the link up that's going to be coming out soon? Or did you guys just yeah, wrap so... up the season?
1: We just took a break from Corona, um, and we were like, because one of the things also that we do is we have always actually physically linked up like that was our mm. whole thing. That we were like linking up, we're all in three different cities, and we would meet in a city and we would link up and record, and then we would have a girls' weekend and go out and have a good time and have so much fun. i so about so... that, that is awesome. <laughs> Yeah, so it was really fun, especially, like, you know, to see my girls that, you know, are in different areas of the world and being able to, like, hang out with them on, you know, pretty regular basis was super dope. Unfortunately, obviously, during Corona, we had to put that on pause. So we haven't linked up recently. But, you know, there's all these wonderful apps. I mean, I'm, like, looking at whatever we're on right now. And I'm like, I need to write this down because maybe we could do a virtual thing, you know, using this app. But we were talking about doing a virtual show soon to put something out. So I would say, like, in the next, like, two or three weeks, we'll have some new episodes for everyone.
0: Very cool. People should definitely and check for, that out. For everyone that's listening and curious, um, if you want to find it, it's the on on Instagram. Yes. And there's a link there yes. to various different avenues to listen to the podcast. Very cool.
1: Yes. Listen to us
0: very cool well thank you so
2: much for coming on today i know it's uh you know no
1: thank you Monday, for having me it Monday was so night. much fun yeah Mondays is the but i had so much fun thanks for having me anytime i'm down to do this
0: awesome perfect thanks again reyna and thank you everyone for listening we'll be back soon with another episode take care